out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer, Jeff Bloom, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Famous in many ways, but mostly for being part of the television personalities, TVPs, during the 80s and 90s, and was on a lot of records, and has also had a career in music ever since. Yes, he has. But anyway, look, I'm not going to babble on about all the bands he's been in, called the, also the House Hunters, um, because he's going to explain all that in this very interesting interview. So after several minutes of casual chat that we edit out, it's a bit boring really, but um, it's getting to, know e- getting to know each other, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, it's a classic starting point. I mean, yeah, I was into like all that kind of glam kind of stuff. And then um, in school, I mean, so basically, so I was born in 60, basically, so I'm four years older than you. But yeah, in school, yes, so when I was kind of like 12, 13, 14, friends were into things like Pink Floyd and... Um, Lots of prog stuff like Genesis and Yes and things like that. (laughs) Uh, I remember going to see Yes. Actually, was this... I I grew up in in Cardiff. Oh, right. Okay, then. So was this the Uh, classic Yes years with Rick Wakeman and, you know... Yeah, the whole stuff. And were they doing sort of close to the edge or relay at that time or topographic ocean? Oh, my God. Yeah, well, those those, those things were, were out. Yes, Tales and Topographic Oceans and... Magic All that moment. serious prog stuff, yeah. Um, and then, fortunately, I was saved by the uh, the advent of punk. Punk came and, and which for me, I guess, kind of happened at what felt like a perfect time for me. I was so you know, yeah, I was sort of like six, seventeen in nineteen seventy-seven. Yes. I remember going to see The Clash in 1978. I think I saw The Clash five times. God, right. So, so it's, all about, it's, all about, to... it's all about good timing, isn't it? So with Cardiff, being brought up in Cardiff, were your parents kind of had, had, have a musical sort of... Not at all. Nope. My, <laughs> my, my, yeah, my parents' taste in music was terrible. When we went on like holidays and things, we used to get... Trini Lopez and the Carpenters on on the on the eight track. Oh, eight track in the car. That's nice. That's okay. uh, and yeah, and that was really about the only time they ever played music. Really, was in the car. Right, blimey. Um, so then, my parents were not into into music at all, and so it's quite it's weird, really, because my brother also plays the drums. Uh, he's been in. in I think he still is in a ska band in Cardiff. Right. So, yeah, it's weird. I think there's probably a lot of people kind of like that, maybe, whose parents yeah, weren't really into music and then... I think, well, it's kind of interesting, because my parents, I suppose, they're now in their 80s, so they... I mean, my dad must have been into music, because he, he sort of often talks about Elvis Presley and his love of that kind of period. But then okay. when... But be, being from a sort of working class background, I think when they sort of 
got together when they got a house or bungalow in their case together you know they sold all their possessions because they didn't ever borrow money or get into any debt at all and so you know we didn't have a record player back in in the house until the early 70s so you know i didn't know that such a thing was missing because we didn't have one in the 60s when i was very young so it was like oh the record player has appeared and and suddenly you know we started having sort of awful country and western music kind of in the house which was okay not cool. I remember him, them having a few cool things. The, the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour is the one that I really do remember, like reading all of the, the stuff yes. that came with it and and playing. Um, but yeah, they they music. Yeah, we had like a radiogram thing, you know. Nice. That's that's. Uh, really cool. So was your brother but, older or younger than you? Who who sort of also? My brother. He's two years younger than me. Right. So how did drumming become part of the, the household, which must have pleased the neighbours? Well, as it happens, he got the first drum kit. He bought a drum kit. And uh, so we had a drum kit in the house. And that was when I was quite... So he must have been very young when he bought that. I guess maybe he was about sort of 13 or something when he bought that. Yeah. So I'd have been about 15. And I remember putting on, you know, I used to, uh, we had a room where we could make a noise, basically, which was good. So I would put on the Clash or the Stranglers or something with the headphones on and just try and drum along, basically. Blimey, that's amazing. And I guess you would have seen Cozy Powell on top of the Pops and thought, I want to be Mr. Powell. Uh, mm, No, no. (laughs) I've never really been into... Drummers, really. People, I meet other drummers, and they, Ooh, who's your favourite drummer? And talk about drumming stuff. And I've never, I like playing the drums, but I've never really been interested in, ooh, I want so-and-so does this thing and plays these drums, so I need to have, be the same as him, you know. I, yeah. Yes, OK. Well, well I, I, funny enough, I have interviewed a lot of drummers, and you're right, they really... They leave me slightly sweating because they start talking about these jazz drummers that I think I have no idea and the and the style that they're holding their sticks and, and what their their timing yeah. is. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortably out of my depth. I must know who some of these jazz drummers are from the 1950s with their kind of interesting styles and syncopated rhythms and thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. as it happens in the 90s, I did meet a, a pretty famous jazz drummer. And had some hopes to have, and so I started doing like jazz drumming lessons in the nineties with a guy called Clifford Jarvis who lived in Dalston, who's on all this like classic blue note stuff from the sixties. Right, that nice one. Did that feel? Was that kind of an an enlightening experience? Did you suddenly think, ah, oh, that's what you do? It, yeah, I mean, it made me play the drums a lot better. Learning that, you know. We're finally making the breakthrough of actually being able to do that kind of stuff. It's pretty hard, you know. Jazz drumming is hard, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. And in, and they have, they go on a lot about something called independence, which is being able to use your hands and feet, doing yes in a syncopated manner. I mean, yeah. which, which takes a lot, you know, like patting your head and rubbing your tummy and well, that's that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, it took sort of like, it was one of, it was, for me it was a bit sort of like riding a, 
a bike in that it I, I tried and tried and tried and just simply couldn't do it for ages and ages. And then suddenly there was a day when suddenly whatever it was clicked in my brain. And yeah. Well, it's interesting in a slightly different way, but I've been, because um, I never got, was probably taught to swim, so I used to sort of, you know, splash about a lot. And then one day I've had a few swimming lessons with, you know, not really great teachers. And then I found somebody who's actually really good. And it's just like, okay, now I slightly get it. But it is a lot of work and you just have to go through lots of pain going, just doing it. And then you think, actually, I've, I've improved, haven't I? But you couldn't see that improvement until a little bit later down the line. And then it's like, actually, it does feel a lot better. There's something changed, hasn't there? But um, I guess it's the same with the practice and doing something that you was slightly were you self-taught then to begin with yes entirely I think yeah yes yeah I would just listen to um yeah just just listen to records and try and do the same thing you know I think someone at one point someone said you know you use this hand for this here and this hand <laughs> here and, and 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 said and showed me right this is how you do a basic beat and then once you know that it's all just like variations. Basically, you know. you're John Bonham. You're going, you're away, aren't you? Just sort of correct it, yeah. Just look confident. You know, fake but, it till you make but it. Yeah, but Cliff got me into, I kind of practice now when I never used to practice really. When I was like playing bands, like most of the time in the TVPs, I would never practice playing the drums at home. I would just play when we played, you know. So um, so that, that would was... be my, <laughs> my practice. <laughs> That sounds so when you hit 16, did you leave school at that stage or did you sort of stay on for no, no, I went to nope, I did my A levels, I went to university. And then what? I did, I did um uh, maths at Warwick University. Fantastic. Um and that's when I started playing in a band, basically. So friends, I was meeting lots of friends, we were all punks at the time. I was at Warwick because you know Warwick is right near Coventry. So we, I was really lucky that the time that I was there coincided with all the two-tone stuff happening in Coventry. Yeah, and so there was all this fantastic music going on, and the specials would—you'd see the specials coming onto the campus, hanging around when bands were playing and things like this. And so yeah, I started playing. Um, Yep, in a band up there. And that's where I first met Dave Musker, who was in the DVPs, because he went to school with one of my best friends at Warwick. And so Dave would come up sometimes and he'd sort of like jam with us in my band up there. The yeah. Orgasmatrons, we were called. My God, that's quite Woody Allen, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> I don't know, was that a Woody Allen moment? Anyway, that's good. So then after you finished your, your maths degree, is this when you sort of veered towards music as more of a full-time thing, or was it always a part-time sort of um, activity? I guess it was always... Well, it took up a lot of my time, but most of the time I, I worked at the same time. Although, yeah, I mean, that was kind of a, a bit of an issue. Um, so I was the only one in the TVPs. Well, certainly once it was just the three of us, when it was me, Dan and Jow. Jow and Dan never had jobs. But I had a job because we really, you know, we made some money in the band, but not really. 
a massive yeah. amount. So when you, because you'd gone from the sort of punk period to the post-punk world, which, you know, everyone loves what they pretend to anyway, and then sort of, you know, the, the early 80s, the indie pop world, the jingly jangly sounds that was the Smiths happened in 83. Did that, um, did that tickle your taste buds at all? Um, yeah, I was into, a, you know, yeah, a lot of that stuff that was around at, at that time. And I think you can, I think we were all, you know, you, you can, obviously you're influenced by sort of what's going on and you can sort of see with like the sort of music that we were playing in the DVPs, you know, it changed quite a bit from sort of part-time punks and where's Bill Grundy now, you know, at, at the beginning to the stuff we started playing, were playing more sort of through the eighties. And even as, as it moved on, you know, through into like late eighties, when all that dance stuff and things were happening and, you know, we were doing, we kind of dabbled in that, that type of stuff. <laughs> Dabbling's a good, a good thing to do. So when did you meet Dan and, and sort of how did you sort of become part of the band? So I, well, as, like I said, I'd known Dave, yes, for some time before. And one of my, this, a friend of mine, I was at college, which he actually knew Joe Foster as well. And I remember the, going to see the TVPs really very early in like late 70s, somewhere in London. And um, yeah, and they also came and rearranged for them to come and perform up at Warwick as well. And then there was one time, not long after I'd finished, so it would have been I think it probably, I'm not sure if it was like late 82 or early 83, maybe, actually going to see them play. And as far as I remember, it was at, at the living room. Alan oh McGee's my God, the living room. This is the legendary living room. Yep. And at that point, Mark Shepard had left the band. So it was, then it was uh, Dan, uh, Joe Foster, Mark Flunder, and Dave Musker, and Dave obviously I knew really well, and I just went along to watch, and they didn't, they'd been using a drum machine, and Dave just said, hey Jeff, how do you fancy playing drums for us this evening? <laughs> and you said... So um, I did, you were and, and yeah, and it was, it seemed to go reasonably well, and then afterwards they said, hey Jeff, we've got a gig coming up in Italy in a few weeks' time, do you fancy doing that as well? And so, you know, I wasn't going to turn that down. No. And, uh, and that was it, basically. That was I, You were there. Because I did, um, a, I did an interview with um, the US people. There was, a, there was a young German chap who went to see the TVPs kind of early on. And I think there was, you know, at some venue and met... Yep. Thomas Zimmerman, do you mean? Well, that's, that's the man, yes. And there was, yep. and it was kind of this kind of, it was like the planets meeting of all these kind of amazing people who went on to do great things. But it was kind of like this, like, you know, lightning striking. And and sort of he he starts a, a career in sort of booking bands across Europe as well. So yep. were you at that gig as well? Or was that before? I, that, I thought must have been before. But basically, not very long after I had been in the band, Thomas organised the first, you know, the first TVP store, his first tour that he'd ever organised, of that was just I think about eight gigs, 
in, um, I think, sort of Germany, Austria, Switzerland, basically. Yes. I can't remember where we played all together. Um, and that was really quite successful, or successful to the point that uh, he wanted us to go back. And basically later that same year, we went back and played something like 20, did it like a month tour, like 28 gigs in a month. My God, you must have, you must have learned your craft at that stage. You must so have that was, tight. yeah, that was fun. But so in between those two dates was when we sort of had this split and Joe and Dave left the band. So, yeah, there'd always been, it was kind of a bit, a little bit weird before that because somehow Joe saw the band as his band, basically. Right. Which was a bit, which was a bit weird because it obviously, it's, to me, clearly it wasn't his band. It was Dan's band. Yes. Or Dan was, you know, Dan had started the band and wrote the songs. And so we had a sort of bit of a row. Joe seemed to expect me to leave. Oh. At the same time. And this was about the same time as well. I guess Alan was starting creation. So the plan was to leave and have this new TVP's band without Dan on creation, which seemed a bit weird to me. Uh, uh, we, there was one gig somewhere in Brixton where two lots of TVPs turned up to perform. And uh, that is confusing, actually, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, but me, me, Dan, and Jow played. <laughs> Did you meet your, you know, the, not nemesis, but did you see, meet your um, equivalent TVP band, you know, backstage? Well, yeah. really, I think Joe expected, I think kind of Joe, I think there was only like one other person, Joe and Dave, I think, well, Joe certainly expected me to, to, to play drums for him and, and perform, yeah. Right. It's not the but, sort of situation yeah. you want to be put in, do you, really? It was, it was very, it was all, it wasn't good. Yeah, and there had all, so there was constantly before that, this kind of tension in the band between Joe and Dan about who was going to be the loudest and who was going to sort of show off the most kind of thing. <laughs> yes, too. And um, then after that, I think it was a lot more straightforward after that then. Yeah. The, when it was like the three classic. of us. And it, yeah, the classic yeah. three-piece. It was like yeah. the Jimmy Hendrix experience. Yeah, and Dan... Yeah, I mean, I think Dan clearly... Because before that point, the TVPs had probably only ever played a total of about a dozen gigs in five years or something like that, really. Yeah. The band had hardly ever performed. And I think, really, that's when... I think that's when Dan really started enjoying performing and we played a lot from yeah. that point on really and also recording a lot but was um was dan also he'd also started the record label at that stage hadn't he yeah which was well at that point it was the label wham he had the record <laughs> label yes, yes. Which he, he came to us he, he got a letter from george michael's solicitors saying like cease and desist kind of thing and uh he went back and said, I've had my record label for longer than Wham have been around. And they paid him. We don't know how much, but he got paid 
off basically to change the name of his record label. Yes, it was um, quite an amazing moment, really, wasn't it? Getting wham to so that and when then Dreamworld started. Yeah. So yeah, that that tour, we had um, one of the bands. This band on his label, the Go Service, uh, they supported us on tour, and then. I think the next tour we did after that was the one when the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters supported us, which was another band on Dreamworld, I think, and yeah. with Dan's girlfriend at the time, yeah. Lorna, singing. It's, it's, it's incredible. You'd need to have one of those Pete Frame family trees really on this, don't you? Because, um, yeah, that... That's because because with the with Dan being in the doing the music and the band and then the record label that's quite a lot of take on and also a lot of admin because I I did an interview with a member of um, One Thousand Violins all the way from Sheffield and I think yeah. they used to come down to London and stay in Dan's house and um, yeah yeah we played a few times with them which were a fantastic pop band and also I know the yeah. Hangman's Beautiful Daughters have had their album, all their material sort of put together in a compilation collection. Yeah, yeah. Optic, a lot of nerve, optic nerve records from Preston have put that together. Yeah. That's been successful as well. So the 80s, obviously, this was kind of a an incredibly creative time all round, really, wasn't it? With with labels, albums, bands. So when when was the first time you went into the studio and did an album? Well, well before we did an album I mean we didn't record an album until Privilege but which was not until whenever that was well, that wasn't until about 90 or something like that wasn't 89 it, I, think? I think yes 89 but the first recording that we did was Love the Bomb um, which was about 87 was it yes. what took what, what took the band so long to record I, was, I don't know we were just enjoying playing, I think, really. There was lots and lots of new material. But, um, yeah, I, just, I don't know. We just kind of didn't really feel the need to, to record it. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, that would have been... I can't really ask Dan that question now. Or maybe I could, and maybe next time I visit him. Yes. If he remembers. But, but, with, um, but with albums like The Painted Word... That came out in '84. Is that a, the? Because I thought that was a, the fourth studio album by the band. But you're saying that they didn't record anything until Privilege in '89. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, the, I mean, I mean, after the Painted Word, yes, there was this gap, basically, quite a, yes, quite a long gap, wasn't there? Yes. We did. We recorded other bits and pieces. There was um, that. Um, sort of singles and little EPs and stuff, but not an album, basically. I think so that's. My, I think that. most of that material has been probably archived now, hasn't it? I think because the other stuff, like and you and the don't tell the kids just love it. Don't, don't the kids just love it? Yeah. And they could have been bigger than the Beatles. The, yeah. Is it all kind of TVPs before you joined the band? Yeah. Right. And that and stuff all came out in fairly quick succession, really. Yes. And how were you, because with the kind of the great period of, you know, the, the living room and the early, you know, like um, all the independent record labels starting and then sort of this kind of great excitement for me, you know, 83, the year of the Smiths. And then for five years, there's this kind of fantastic wave of bands who have 
who suddenly get such a platform like the June Brides and the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No and the Triffids and the Go-Betweens and the Chills. You know, it, there, is, there is kind of a magical time for sort of us pop kids. Did you feel that you were part of that zeitgeist? Um, I don't know if we felt if we were part of that same thing. We kind of just did our own thing, really. I mean, we obviously, we listened, you know, we were listening to this stuff. But um, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, personally, I don't know if I ever felt that we were necessarily part of that same... Yeah, I don't know. I felt that I was like part of, of something, but there was it, it was just kind of a great time to be playing. There was lots of stuff happening, and we would sometimes like play with, you know, be playing with some of these bands and and stuff like that. And it was, yeah, Alan McGee was like doing his stuff. We would we kind of quite sort of involved. Yeah, we'd go to a lot of his things. We'd known that. I mean, I'd known Alan since. I used to live in South in South Tottenham when I first came to London, and when he was uh, married and living in a flat and working for British Rail. Right, the British Rail years, the classic. So, yeah. so we, yeah, we'd kind of known Alan since the beginning, and we would, you know, we were like friends. We'd go along to stuff that he was doing. <clears throat> I'm amazed. I'm amazed the TVPs aren't actually on that sort of the famous NME cassette, really, that Neil Taylor put together with a couple of others, but it was mostly Neil, wasn't it? Because they would have just, I would have thought they would have been just the ideal band, really. Yeah. But it wasn't to be. Um, John yeah. Peel play, you did a John, well, I think the band did a John Peel session, but yeah. then, does John Peel sort of lose interest in the band during the sort of the 80s a bit? I think maybe a bit. I think maybe when the, probably when, when we, when the band started taking things a bit more seriously, he'd, <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah, he liked the kind of the, uh, the uh, sort of amateurish silliness of the, the early stuff. I think that was, his, you know, he liked that sort of thing, didn't he? Yes, he, he liked, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and big flame, but bog shit as well. But then when you went to do the album, had you got all the material, had, you know, all sorted, and did you, because this was on Fire Records, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, the material, yes, all that stuff, it was all um, what, what we were playing live, basically. I mean, Dan would just, we hardly ever rehearsed in the TVPs, so Dan would just surprise us. He'd like, to, sometimes he would tell us that he had a new song and then it went like this, or sometimes he'd just start playing it and we had to join in as best we could and we would kind of gradually work things out live that's kind of how we did how we did it really yes that sounds quite organic really doesn't it did you feel at that stage that music was going to potentially be your full-time occupation or did you did it always feel like now keep the day job and just keep the music kind um, of in the background I mean I don't know I mean it was the, the music was the main thing in my life, really. The, I mean, I, I worked to, to pay the bills and stuff like that. But what I, I lived for, really, was, was the music that we were doing. And the, the, the sort of playing in the band always came first, really. Yes. So, uh, 
And were you part, because there was the, um, sort of having spoke to a couple of the members from the, the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters, they, they talked about the, is it the ambulance station as this kind of great yeah. alternative nights and early, early yeah. I think Jesus and the Mary Chains first gig in London was there as well, but I might be slightly wrong. Um, but yes, was that quite, a, was that a scene that you were also kind of circling? Yes, I mean, Gordon, uh, yeah. Gordon sort of, and his, his friend Alvin were the, the, the guys. Uh, they're still very good friends. I'm with, with, we're all still good friends. And yeah, we had many really wild and crazy nights <laughs> at the ambulance station. It was a pretty mad place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a great place to play. I, I remember someone sharing online recently some like posters from there from some and some 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 great lineups as well i can't think it was one one lot with about five bands playing all together for about one pound fifty or something like that i know that that, that seems obscenely yeah you, you sort of want to go back and do it all again really don't you yes yeah, yeah, yeah sometimes yeah you think wow yeah i'd like to, yeah so yeah the ambulance station was a really cool place we went there lots of Played there a lot of times, and not just when we were playing, but to see other things going on there. Yeah, it was always uh, a pretty and did, wild. And, and did the Australian and New Zealand bands? Did you get to meet them because they were coming to London quite a lot during the eighties and squatting, and often I heard stories from people like the Go Betweens and Triffids, and even the Chills. You know, sort of thinking, right, we've got to we've got to get to London to further our career so to speak I just wondered if they, that was also something that um entered your orbit um not really personally we played with we had this band called uh the celibate rifles who played with us uh, in a few European gigs once uh Great I don't name. know if you've heard of them no um, I have not come across the celibate rifles at all no I'm playing in another little project with Jow at the moment, and we've got a uh, this lady, Australian lady, playing sax, and she remembers going to see them a few times back in the in the. Well, I do. Re- I have seen a photograph of one of the members of that um, the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters with Robert Forster on the go-betweens and it looked like everybody okay. was kind of hanging out in some sort of groovy north london scene at that time so that's why we I might have done something i think we might i don't know we might have at some point have met up with them and, and done something i mean you know at the time we just thought what the hell and then afterwards you think no oh, i wish i'd paid more attention but yeah so well, what yeah, your... there's a lot of that <laughs> wish i'd taken pictures but what was your yeah. experience of recording um privilege like can you remember much about the process um i'm well but mainly i mean recording was always good fun you know we we would tend to kind of very often what we would sort of end up with was quite different to how things sounded live um, we and we would never really try and replicate what we did in a studio. And playing you, it live, there'd be lots of like extra instruments and things, overdubs and bits and pieces like this. Yeah. So uh, we tended to end up with something sounding a lot more polished than we ever <laughs> we ever sounded when we were doing it for real. Did you find but, a um, producer that could capture the sound of the band? 
on that particular release. Pardon? Did you manage to find a producer that could capture the sound that you wanted for that particular release? Well, that stuff, that was produced by Phil Rinal, I believe, wasn't it? Yes. Um, I don't know. I've got to say, personally, I never really saw eye to eye with Phil. Because, uh, yeah, I, I always wanted things to sound natural, basically. And he wanted things to sort of sound polished and to have click tracks and and everything to sound perfect and and yeah i didn't never felt that that's what we were really about so when but, you when you saw I, I would imagine you might have seen it there's been a lot of discussion hasn't there about the click track especially during the 80s and there was a film the wedding present album george best that came out and there was a whole thing about the drummer and the click track and the producer and there was a lot of issues and i think the drummer sort of that was when he left the band and they got another drummer in. Did you, did you have much pressure as, as that person sort of trying to keep the beat? And I, I did an interview with Lindy Morrison and that sounded horrendous because she was the drummer and, and this thing with the click track as well and the producer. Yeah, well, it's impossible, really. You, know, you cannot be 100% bang on. You know, it's impossible as a human being, I think, to do that, really. That's the thing. And... and does it matter? That's the question. And I guess at that point, that was at the time when all this like digital stuff started coming along. And if you wanted to be put over dubbing stuff with sequences and things like that, mm. if it wasn't 100% perfect, it made it, you couldn't do all of this snazzy new stuff, I think, that maybe producers wanted to be doing. Yeah. So, so sometimes... I, yeah, so there were some, I think there's a couple of songs on Privilege where, where they would just like take a little bit of drums and loop it round and stuff like that and just use that, which obviously I was never, you know, not very impressed by that, really. Well, I would imagine but, you would have been insulted. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so, so to that extent, it's kind of weird. I don't think that still exists anymore now. I think people have realised that that's not really what live music is about. Maybe because at the time, that, like I said, there was all this new stuff with sequences and sampling and all the rest of it that people, they wanted all this stuff to be perfect from the sense of 100% in time, 100% of the time. Uh, but So, the, yeah, there was some of that going on. I just wondered if you... It was probably a why I was not seeing so sort of eye-to-eye with the... Yes, well, I, I think there's quite a few producers, a few, especially drummers and producers, having issues. So I think there was just, you know, it's it's kind of only natural, isn't it? Because I think they're saying, look, let's just get, you know, a machine to do this, because then it's going to be a lot easier for everybody, and you might be able to have it played on Radio One. So, and then the drummer said, yeah. "Hang on, that's that's me. You're just talking about. <laughs> I'm in the room. <laughs> don't don't talk don't talk about me in front of my face." Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, okay, I, I didn't kind of know, but, yeah. Well, I'm glad other drummers, to hear that other drummers, I didn't know about that, but I'm glad it wasn't just me, and that <laughs> there was, a, <laughs> yeah, other people facing that thing. Oh, and I think that, they, they yeah. all did. And I'm sure, like, when you go back and you listen, going back to, say, talking about this guy, Cliff, who honestly played on some of the most incredible, like, Blue Note stuff of, of the 60s, 
um, like classic albums with people like Herbie Hancock and Jackie McLean, you know, famous people. And you know, I know for certain that those that music is not all, you know, completely in time. There's it's going all over the place, but it's some of some of like the if you like jazz, some like the greatest stuff ever recorded, and no one's bothered about. Yeah. No, well, if it's jazz and it sounds a bit off, you know, you think it's just even, you don't understand it and it must be... But, really but yeah, but I think, yeah, so that sort of stuff was happening now. Funnily enough, I mean, I did some recording just fairly recently with a cool guy called Mark Waterman, who's worked with people like Elastica and stuff like that. And, you know, he, he wasn't bothered at all about... I think things have moved on again from from that point now, yeah. where where it, they can actually they can these people who want to do all these cool digital effects and things they can actually cope with the fact that it might not be totally in, in time all the time now. It doesn't seem to kind of matter again so much anymore. I think with but, the 80s, you might have suffered with that because there was a sort of trend towards that Trevor Horn production sort of sound, yeah. wasn't there, with a really like, blimey, that's quite um, in your face. Isn't it? And it sounds so dated now as well when you ever see those clips from Top of the Pops from 1980. Yeah. Well, um, well, there's, there was a couple of tracks. There's a track called My Hedonistic Tendencies on uh, um, Privilege, where they did exactly this and sort of looped the drums and it's got had got this kind of digital dancey kind of sound. And uh, kind of, uh, funnily enough, we we almost like never played that song again <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yes. It like just sort of really, it kept just kind of spoiled it a bit, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, that's, I, yeah. Live <laughs> music should, music should be live. I mean, one of the things I'm hoping I mean, Fire have started putting out loads of, having reissued, you know, just about everything that was recorded, they've now moved on to um, putting out uh, live recordings. Right. And so this double album of like live recordings just came out recently. And I think the next one they might be planning <laughs> is uh, for the next year's record store day is all radio sessions. Oh, so that would be the Peel session. We did the Kershaw session when I was in the band as well with Andy Kershaw. And we did in America a couple of kind of live radio, sort of like they were recorded, but they were like recorded live, if you know what I mean. We yes. just went in the studio and played for an hour and those were sort of put out on a, a, yeah. a, a New York station and one in Boston. God, that's fantastic. I'm so pleased you've got the recording still. And, um, and Well, I got in, actually got in touch with these people called WMBR and they sent me, they said, oh, we've archived all of our stuff to digital and they sent me this, I don't know, it's like eight gigabyte WAV um, lossless FLAC file of the whole, the entire gig. God. And I have to say, that's one of my favourite things that we've ever done because... It, it's recorded properly, you know, it's like really good quality recording, but we're just playing live. Yeah. And there isn't really anything else out there that I know of that's, that is really like that. Like I said, I, you know, if, if I'd had my way in the studio, we would have just done stuff 
recorded it as live as possible, maybe overdubbed some guitar and vocals or something, and that that would have been it. And then it would it would have really sounded like yeah. how we sounded, because yeah, the studio stuff doesn't really sound like how we played the songs. And it's funny because everyone who knows the songs from the records, that's all they know it as. But often how I remember the songs is different because I remember it as how we played it live hundreds and hundreds of times. Yes. So I have quite different memories of of songs. Yeah, it's interesting. So during that period when you were sort of back in the studio, doing the studio stuff at that time, the late 80s and then into the 90s, did they, did, was there much effect on the, because there was this kind of a bit of a musical shift, wasn't there? The next kind of generation, you know, there'd been, obviously there'd been you know, lots of different scenes in the mainstream, but there was the indie world and then, you know, the Smiths broke up 87 and, um, and then, you know, ecstasy and then there's the sort of dance scene and then there's the whole Seattle grunge scene and the Pixies. And, and so do you, you, know, you sort of existing during that time. I just wondered how you felt when you went to record Closer to God in, in 92, because this, sti- this is still before Britpop sort of appeared but you'd obviously been well Dan has certainly been in the band since like the late 70s I just wondered if you'd been that kind of curious about what was happening musically or whether that had no effect on the next album um well we were kind of even um you know we sort of engaged with things like the dance scene I remember going to some like raves and things with Dan (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and even I remember weirdly once playing playing at the venue and I was like packing up, chatting to sort of like a fan who couldn't believe I said, "Oh, I'm going off to a rave in a minute." And he said, "How can you want to go to a rave when you're in the TVPs?" And I was like, "Well, you know, there's other other stuff out there." Yeah. So and yes, and all and like I said, all that grunge stuff. You know, I was like a big fan of. Nirvana and Dinosaur Jr. and all that kind of stuff. And we all liked that kind of music too. So, um, yeah. So when you so came I to guess, doing, you know, yeah, I just wondered how that filtered into you, you know, going in, writing and then recording closer to God. Well, again, you know, the writing of it happened as, as it, I mean, Dan would write the songs. We had all of the songs before we went in to the studio. They were, and I mean, this is all, you know, as with all the recordings that I did with the TVPs, it was stuff that we had been playing and we'd kind of pretty much worked out how we wanted to do it from performing from performing live. We might change things around a bit. The only time we would sometimes, the only time we'd ever have rehearsals would be if we had some recording coming up, then sometimes we'd go and have a few sessions in a in a rehearsal studio just to kind of work out some bits and pieces before we actually went into the... And what was the, the dynamic studio. like of, of the band at that stage? Because obviously this is kind of a, a almost like a marriage with people and you're sort of, you know, plus getting older and growing up. So you're still changing a bit more than you possibly do as you get much older. So I just wondered how the three of you were sort of dealing with the dynamic of keeping it together. It always worked really well, basically, with the three of us. There was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, Dan was happy for me and Jared to pretty much do what we wanted to do. 
he he had his songs occasionally he might make a suggestion of of what he'd had in his mind when he started writing a song but you know when he said you know that word organically that's kind of how it, how things happened and we we all just got on quite easily really and we you know you, you get to be you know when you're traveling around for like months on end in a camper van or something like this I guess you either end up as really good friends or you end up completely hating each other and luckily for us we ended up as as uh, good friends and we were we really kind of grew closer really as, as things went on I would say yeah because there's some really touching songs on that album isn't there there's there's things like you're special and always will be and then there's also my very first nervous breakdown as well as yeah. you don't know how lucky you are they, there's a sort of sense of melancholia sort of creeping into some of the yeah yep yeah, yeah so how did how did how was that sort of coming over you know with the band and and sort of seeing what was slowly changing in each of you or um well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some of that was coming out of, um, you know, Dan's relationship with his girlfriend at the time, Alison. Um, Dan, I think, was also starting to have maybe some uh, I don't know, like questioning everything, things a lot more. He seemed to stop being maybe showing the, the 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 first signs of some of the sort of like mental health issues that he, he had kind of a little bit later on after you know after i sort of stopped being in the band when you know when he ended up being kind of homeless and all of these things that, that started happening to him um it was kind of sometimes wholesome it was kind of sometimes hard to tell with dan how much he meant things you know when he wrote some of these songs, like, you know, I'm like Nervous Breakdown and um, Closer to God and things like that. I, I kind of always kind of felt that there was a, some sort of fair helping of irony. Right. In some of this as well. Yes. Uh, but, but then subsequently looking back, then I wondered, you know, since then I've looked back and wondered maybe it wasn't all as ironic as... I thought it was at the time. Yes, well, but, uh, it's, always, it's always tricky at the time. It's always easy in hindsight. But then, then what's your relationship with the band? Is this a, a time when you also leave during the sort of the 90s? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of... That, we'd, we'd kind of that was really after... Um, I think maybe after that, the, the tour that we did in about 92, 93. And for me, somehow it just, that, it, that somehow, it, it just kind of seemed to be just like repeating things a bit. I kind of just felt, I don't really know. I'm looking back, I kind of regret that decision really. But at the time, I just thought, really, I think I just sort of came to the conclusion that really we had sort of done whatever we were going to do, really, and that maybe it was time to try something else. Yes, and that was... But, that. So, yes, did you have to have a sort of a sit-down meeting and 
discuss the the moment that you're going to leave the band? Not really. I just gave phoned up Dan and said, "Hey, you know, I think there was just some things, yeah, on that that, that last tour where I just sort of." It seemed that things, yeah, that that it somehow that it didn't feel as 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 enjoyable and as good as as things that had come before, and so I thought, really, okay, maybe now's the time to leave. And I I just sort of gave Dan a call and explained that really. And that was it. There you go. And that was that. So how did you then? What happens next? Because obviously you sort of still keep playing music. Did you ever go back into the band at all, or was that the the last time? That was the last time up until um, we did that, this benefit for Dan at the 100 Club. Um, are you familiar, you know, about that? Yeah. Uh, I um, can't think when that was now, about four years ago, I guess, now. It was quite close. It was quite recent, really, wasn't it? It seemed, well, though, I'm yeah. saying that. It probably wasn't. <laughs> I'm not good. Was, yeah, but obviously, the, you know, it's been, yes, I think it was about, Maybe about 2018, I think. Right. Okay. Yeah. So was um, that quite was that quite a nice experience having the benefit at the Hundred Club? Yeah, that that was really good fun. We actually went and we did a, a similar kind of thing over in Athens, and um, had been planning just before COVID. We were actually planning to go over to America. We got some invites. There's a, an indie club called Part Time Punks in Los Angeles. Oh, excellent. And it was going to be their, <clears throat> I think, 20th anniversary party. And they were going, you know, there's going to be like a weekend of stuff. And we, um, they wanted us to play there. And we'd had some invitations to play in New York. And so we thought, hey, you know, that would be fun. But then that was all planned for like June, May and June of uh, 2019, which, of course. Uh, would that have included Dan, by the way? Well, no, Dan is not no. capable of playing no, no, that's music what I anymore, so. unfortunately. But um, I've done lots of stuff with, with Jow. I mean, um, yes, I've, I've since the, like the TVPs, I've been in a f- a various sort of projects and things that um, that Jow has done. I think I was saying with him now, I've been in, I've been in something like five bands with him now. <laughs> Yes, this is quite something. Is it a bit of a scene in London that, you know, everyone just sort of slips into each other's kind of band, so to speak? Is it kind of like a nice community? Well, well we've got, there's a kind of a group of people that I guess, um, yeah, friends and things, people that we've played with in the past. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing like three things with Joe at the moment, this Swell Maps thing coming up. There's this band called The Rude Mechanicals. We've got a gig coming up in... 29th uh and um yeah there's this like handful of <laughs> several people that have been in been in various of these same projects yes that just are people that we know we, we know and feel comfortable playing with i guess it makes life easy yes well absolutely the rude men rude mechanicals Rude Mechanicals, because you've got a very excitable, or not excitable, but um, flamboyant singer, haven't you? I see. Yes. I, I seem to get the emails and sort of have cl- clicked on the link and thought, oh, okay, so is that, is that one of Joel's um, kind of adventures? Well, that, it wasn't started by him. 
so that project was started by uh, yes, the singer you've seen and, and another friend, uh, Cos Chapman. He who's going to be who's a guitarist. Um, he's going to be playing in with this Swell Maps thing as well. And Steve's got another project that he does with those some of those people as well. Yes, blimey, um, it's it's quite it's quite something, isn't it? So was that with the with the TVPs? Was that the the only kind of time you spent much? you know, um, you know, studio time sort of recording stuff, but with all these other musical adventures, this is mostly kind of live and... Um... Um, well, no, well, I did, I mean, there was this other project, so early in the, I guess in like mid-80s, there was, and I did another thing with Steve called The House Hunters, uh, where we recorded an album and a couple of singles and we did a, a little tour. Um... And um, yes, we'll be various of these yes, other bands. I've done sort of recordings and bits and pieces as well. My God, I've never come across the House Hunters either. This is terrible. No, yeah, you, know, you should look. That's that was quite fun. Um, I think Jow because Jow had a label for a while as well called Hollow Planet. And he was probably, yes, he's probably sort of got a huge amount of stuff, hasn't he, really? So, yes, my God. So is it the case still that you, you well, you still got your sort of day job, but the music's still sort of in the background? Well, I don't have a day job at the moment since since COVID. So, all, yeah, so now at the moment, I'm just doing music, basically. Right. <laughs> which is why I've got lots of time, yeah, for, for doing stuff. So I'm happy to be doing lots of music stuff. This is fantastic. I mean, if you could have said something to your, like a 16, 18 year old self starting out in that interesting career or hobby, I mean, is there anything that you would have just kind of wanted to whisper to them and say, look, I've got a few top tips. This is what you should sort of also I, would be, I think the only thing would have been to have, uh, to get some of it, a bit more of it recorded. Like you said, like take some photos, get someone to video, I, yeah, there's like hardly any footage of us performing. Just recently, this stuff surfaced from, I don't know if you've seen online, uh, I've chatted to this guy, a uh, German guy who uh, videoed back when it was proper, you know, you needed a proper video camera. Yes. Uh, a couple of gigs in Germany, and there's a gig from 80, I think it was 83, and he did another one from when we were there, like 87 as well, but the whole gig. He sent me a DVD, and that was uh, that was fun to watch that because there's no footage of us performing, and so I kind of uh, I know, now you yes. go to a gig, everyone's there with their too phones. Much. It's just too much. I know. Well, I did, I have realised, and especially just in the last year, there's been books on you know like um, the Texas punk scene. There's another one in Boston punk, post-punk, new wave book that came out as well. There's lots on sort of things like the Mud Club in New York and CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. And, and I just realised that a lot of those places, there was just one or two really good photographer, including Kevin Cummins, who, from, you know, the UK, who just went to these things, took a lot of really good pictures, obviously went, oh, well, no one's going to be interested in the Sex Pistols on Christmas Eve in 1976, all, you know, Joy Division, but then, you know, in the last year have, you know, brought these amazing books out and it's like, oh, fantastic. This is, this is, yeah. I believe someone was there with a camera 
and not just some rubbish little thing and um have got have have captured it because that's you know that's kind of priceless really you know and it it says so much you know from from what the scene was like you can't really picture it and you know the pictures of you know, just the venue yeah it, it, but it's amazing when you do see sometimes i get you know people share on facebook and things photos from a gig where they took you know photos from wherever that it was and it's amazing how much something like that you, you suddenly start remembering all of these things yes that happened do you uh, think we're actually um Jao recently he did a he wrote written a book about his time in the swell maps and he's he's now being asked to do something for the tvp so the two of us we're kind of putting our heads together and trying to uh um remember all of this stuff and and yeah we, we're trying to hopefully go and to do a book about our time in the tvps uh steve actually kept a diary on tour believe it or not so uh, which is pretty good <laughs> and he's got these he showed me this he's got this like box folder thing with um flyers and publicity photos and just all kinds of bits and pieces from gigs and stuff that he'd sort of collected over the years so uh this is good this is this is this is quite handy i mean you must be kind of fascinated i think you i'm putting words in your mouth here aren't I? but you know there's these documentaries that have come out on people like the nightingales robert lloyd and the nightingales and obviously i just mentioned the wedding present but there's been films on the slits and dolly mixtures and the go-betweens and chills yeah. you must think god yes but look at the tvps and this kind of kind of creative one well i wouldn't I wouldn't say genius, but you know, very creative character. You you must think, oh, that that would make a great kind of documentary on Sky yeah, I, yeah, but yeah, it would. There was a, there was a there has been a so a little kind of documentary thing on the where, where Dan was interviewed. I can't remember who did that. I think bits of that are on, online. online. Yeah. But it would be it would I, yeah it would be good for someone to do it properly. I think it would be. I think it's funny. I think Dan is starting to get a bit more recognition for the songwriter than that he is now than maybe we got at the time. I mean, I meet a lot of kind of young people who are in sort of bands, you know, post-punk kind of bands. Yes. Current, who, uh, you know, are fans of the, the band and, and know songs and sort of appreciate Dan. I think maybe he's starting to yeah, be appreciated a little bit more now. Well, but yeah, I, think, would... I think on Spotify, there was something like, was it 67,000 listens a month, which was, I thought, like, well, that's... that's yeah, no, I remember Alan, Alan McGee saying, telling us, he was trying to persuade us. Um, he said we should find a young singer that, that sounds like uh, uh, Dan. And... Uh, Start out on the road, start yeah. doing some gigs, but yeah, it's it, yeah, we then we have kind of contractual issues, really. I mean, I don't know if you know, but Dan signed away all the, his rights and everything to fire when uh he was going through hard times, right? And <laughs> yeah, we have had offers of help. Uh, the lawyer who sued fire on behalf of Jarvis Cocker and Pulp has <laughs> <is>, uh, <laughs> offered his services because he reckons that 
you know, Dan was clearly not himself, really, when he signed all of this stuff, and he reckoned that we could get away with that. But certainly at the moment, all all money from anything to do, uh, yes, with DVP stuff is goes to fire, which is why I think they're so keen on reissuing everything, because it's all profit for them. Oh, that's a bit hard, isn't it, really? You know? Yeah, and it makes it, it may really, it makes everything really hard. And it kind of makes you feel very kind of ambivalent about all of these releases. Really, we should be all be being really happy about, isn't it fantastic, it's all of this stuff being put out and reissued and people wanting to buy it. But we've got this other side of things of, well, Dan's not going to see any of that money and, you know, he's in a, a bad way and it just doesn't seem right. So... It, it spoils the whole thing, really. No, I could imagine. It's it's a very sort of, you know, you want the legacy in the archive and, and it to be, yeah, there. Yeah. And, and promoted. But, yeah. you, know, when, when, you know, when someone's sitting there going, oh, thank you very much. Or I'll go and check my bank balance. This is going very well. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, yeah. isn't it? Yes. It's a shame because actually it's a, it's a good idea because like, obviously there's quite a few members of the band who are still obviously playing and sort of keeping it together you just need a singer and um yes it could it could be done look at was it rick Ash, ashley 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 he, yeah he did he did a, a couple of nights doing smith's numbers on one level it sounds terrible on another you think it's just not too bad i actually quite like that idea i don't think i'd go well, but I yeah. I, well it was the thing was it was such good fun when we we did the um uh you know the, the, the benefit thing and it was great to to meet up with them you know, to play with Dave again and to meet up with a couple of the guys who kind of played with Dan in like the early 2000s when he tried to get things back together a bit. Uh, and we loved playing the songs, you know. Yes. We, and we all, we, we really enjoy We get on together really well and we have a, a thoroughly good time when, you know, practising and playing the songs and, 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 and performing them. So... Yes, we, we like. Well, like I said, we were all perfectly happy. Not surprising, really, with, with the, the offer of uh, going and playing like half a dozen gigs in America. Yes, I mean, clearly, you know, I mean, who wouldn't be uh, like would, to do something like that? Who would like take that? the vocal, by the way, for that? Well, um, well, so currently, Jao does most of the singing. Um, Lee McFadden, I don't, um, who. Uh, he um, he was been playing with the cult figures. He was playing with ATV. He wasn't in the band originally. He's he's but he's in uh, lots of uh, <laughs> uh, bands like old punk bands that have started doing stuff again and things. Yeah. He seems to be the anyway. But he, I quite like it when he sings because he sings more in Dan's register. Yeah, yeah. Um, one one of the people who was suggested was. A guy called Martin C. No, never come across Martin C. Who was in? I can't remember what his band was. He sang a song with us on that that night as well. Yeah. But but yeah, Alan. When we we, we all kind of met up with Alan, like I said, yes, a couple of years ago now, and um, yeah, he was saying, "So my God, you guys, you get all these uh, listens on Spotify. You should go and you know, you should do something." 
Oh, actually, I think the very things are also, they have a similar problem issue with um, fire records as well. That's why the Shen never plays any of that material. Okay. So it's fire, like... Yeah, the, 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 the guy who runs fire, Clive Solomons, is a bit of a bastard, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He seems to have screwed a lot of people over in his time. Yes, but... Yeah, it's a shame. And when was the last time you saw Dan? Did you have you seen him kind of since kind of Um I haven't been back. I'm gonna be I need to arrange something now because for a long time no one was allowed to, to even go and see him. Um but I think I think you can now. They're very um Jow did go fairly recently. You have to so kind of book in advance and then have a test when you arrive. Of course, at, yeah. Because he's in this like nursing home, um, yeah, it's kind of south, southwest London. And is he doing okay? I mean, does he, you know, is he, is it kind of nice to sit, you know, to communicate with him? I just, I wanna... find it's, yeah, it's hard. I find it quite hard, you know, it is quite hard seeing, you know, just seeing him in this, this you know, he's in a, a, a pretty bad way. Um, you know, he's got no use of his uh, legs at all. His hands are very shaky. He's, he couldn't play, you know, he, no. play, he struggles even to sort of hold, uh, you know, a, a drink. Um, he's blind in one eye and the other eye is not great. He's got almost no short-term memory at all. He's crazy. Yeah, uh, but he does remember a lot of things, you know, that happened from before. Yeah. And he, he you know, he likes listening, so he, and he likes listening to music, he'll kind of like sing along with, you know, stuff if you put, you know, play, play their own music. And uh, he can remember all kinds of stories and things like this from, from beforehand. Um, but he, yeah, I mean, yeah, he doesn't come here. He, he doesn't look great. He, it's just, he looks kind of old before his time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's it's quite a emotion, you know, it makes me quite emotional, but, you know, yeah. when I come out from, from, from seeing him, really, because it's just seems such a shame because for the, someone who was always so, um, yeah, Kind of fun to be around and so sort of like creative and and kind of cheeky and and yeah you know he was like a major part of my life for a long time so it, it, yeah it, it's hard. I would imagine. I guess is it is it would is it in the same way that you know people like Sid Barrett and Peter Green have you know like gone in that in this sort of yeah just just gone. Has he got that kind of similar life? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's he's yeah, he's he's yeah, he's not the person that he used to be, you know, uh, uh, at all. There's a little you see, you get little kind of glimpses, but he's yes, with everything that's happened to him, you know, with his, like, you know, the sort of brain injuries and things. So, so yes, he's a, he's, is a, a, a very different sort of person. He, he, he can't ever be 
how he used to be again, you know. Yes. Blimey. Yeah, so we have yeah, to... Yeah, no, yeah, it, it, it's a sad a situation. It's a very sad situation. And so, but so in, in a lot of ways, though, you know, that's one of the reasons why those of us that have played with him in the past would like to continue things and, and bring his music to to more people, because there were so many fantastic songs that he wrote. So Yes, well, I have to say, I mean, you know, one of my favourites, he says, having to look down, yes, Stop and Smell the Roses. The classic. Yep. Got to say, it's had a million, a million plays, more nearly a million and a half. Yeah, I mean, it is incredible, oh, the figures that he's... It's, it's, so that, that was really good. When we did that one at the um, Pendred Club, we had Clive from uh, Doctor and the Medics sang that oh, one. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And he really did a fantastic job of it. Yeah. Um, wow, it's funny, isn't it? That, that, yeah. I should check up. Yeah, if I would be interested, I should go and have a look and see what get, what get, all, get all the views. Yes. Uh, because... Uh, what go on? Tell me what are the most popular things on? Well, you get a monthly listener, sixty-one thousand a month listeners, and the first well, part-time punks is a million and a half. You've had Diary of a Young Man is like one, one million three hundred and. It's funny, but then actually that was used on a Netflix a little bit in a, this Netflix series, right? And then so pictures, maybe... of, pictures of Dorian Gray's got six hundred and seventy thousand listens, and. Uh, Stop and Smell the Roses is up there with 1,360,000. You know, so that's a lot of listens, really, isn't it? It is, so, isn't it? It's funny why that one. I mean, I quite like that song, but it's, it's, it's not one of it's. I wouldn't say that was one of my favourite ones, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's, I can't see it. I can't find it quiet at the moment, but there is there is often a page which says where, you, where you're most popular, what, what part of the world is listening oh. to your records, which is often quite amazing because you think... All right, you're really big in Mexico, by the way, but I, I can't uh, I can't quite access that at this very... Now, funnily enough, Phil Vanal currently lives, I believe, in Mexico City. <laughs> yeah. No, believe it or not, he has won um, Latin Emmy Awards for um, his contributions to Latin music. I can only assume that he's not forcing people to use click tracks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he's he's all the way over. So he's still happening, is he? Yeah, that's weird. Yes, isn't it? Yes, I briefly got in touch with him a while ago, but yeah, just say look, but forget the click track, mate. It's just not worth it. No, sometimes it it, it says where you you know you're most played, but I can't see it on this occasion. Uh, so that's a bit. Of a shame. I don't know how you, I'm going. I'm, we should go and have a look, but yeah, it's a but good it shows you. I mean, that's yeah. It's nice to see that people are, are still listening to stuff. But yeah, and it's interesting. Like I, I know Netflix and such, like can find the most obscure songs that kind of suddenly appear. And um, I've heard a few people who just were in bands where suddenly they have a record that had completely been forgotten for about forty years suddenly appears in a Steven Spielberg yeah. movie. And I thought it was really cool. I don't know if you've seen. There is an advert for. Is it? Is it Apple or one of the, the, the Delta 5? Right, yes. That's, um, yeah, classic. Yeah, mind your own business. And I remember that, that coming in, you know, as soon as that bass line came on, I was watching TV, I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs>
I know. Well, it's, you don't yeah. expect the Delta Five to be in a yes it's a like, TV advert, but yeah. But see, yes, it will probably be in John Lewis's Christmas advert this year. Something really obscure that you think clever. Some marketing person who's obviously in the same age group as yourself or me. Uh, yeah, I guess. Thinking, right, we're going to play my favourite song, and then I'll give my then I'll give my notice in when everyone says that was a disaster. But anyway, they'll like it. <laughs> you can go out on a high. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Thanks ever so much, Jeff. So. Yes, okay. if you want, I can always send you a link to the interview and you can always use it elsewhere in, and put it on your social media platform sites because um, I'm always happy to do that. But yes, it's been, it's been great. So um, I'm glad we managed to sort of get a time and a date. There you go. But um, so tonight or this afternoon you're rehearsing for, is it, which band is this? This is this band called the Star Nose Moles. We're kind of a little bit sort of... Uh psyche grungy kind of stuff very simple guitar bass drums um it's good fun and who's in the band i probably won't have heard of either the other people in the band i don't think that's fair enough no you won't have heard of either of the other people in the band but it's not um, joel Joel head no not joe no one completely different people yeah i sort of yeah so time. so that was that's what's been fun but they're a bit younger than me but yeah <laughs> we get to that age where you go yes i am the oldest person in the room never mind it's life anyway but look thank you ever so much this has been amazing and um yeah best of luck with the book publication and uh yeah well that will be yes well we've got to write it first but that's the gotta, thing it's got to be done. so much of it is all a blur these days but uh, Mm. But yeah. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I mean, people who've put out books recently, and there's been quite a lot. You know, once they start the process, it all starts coming back. So, um, it well, hope, yeah. And we've got, and well, we have people like Thomas Zimmerman who can help us out with, uh, you know, lots of, uh, you know, Dates. stuff from tours and things. He always used to do these fantastic itineraries with, for every single day, details of you know, where we were staying and the venue and the promoter and uh, all of this stuff. Uh, so we had a complete plan. We always knew where we were. <laughs> on uh, good, good old Thomas. Yeah, and uh, he never got quite as uh, smashed as all the rest of us. So uh, he probably <laughs> remembers a bit more. Excellent. Well, no, good luck. And um, yes, good luck with uh, your your gig with the, the rude rudiment. God, I keep getting it wrong. Rude Mechanicals. Rude Mechanicals. Yeah. It's not that, it shouldn't be that difficult, should it? Rude Mechanicals. Anyway, look, have a great day and all the best. I'll keep in touch. Thanks a lot again. Nice to meet you. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Jeff Bloom from the TV Personalities and lots of other bands as well. I know I should have made some notes as I was, as he was telling me some of his bands since that. That crazy time with the amazing Dan Tracy. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, please, and nice, because otherwise I'll be sad. And also, why did you listen? That's what I want to know. Anyway, and also, um, all these have been um, archived, these interviews, fascinating as they are. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's true. So have a great week. Stay safe.